0: Chapter Sixty Five of No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. No Quarter by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter Sixty Five Very Near an Encounter mitchell lies at the foot of the steep façade already spoken of as forming a periphery to the elevated forest district. The slope ascends direct from the western skirts of the little town, but outlying ridges also enclose it on the north, east, and south, so that even the tall spire of its church is invisible from any great distance. So situated, railways give it a wide berth, and few places better deserve the title secluded. The only sort of traveller who ever thinks of paying it a visit is the commercial, or some pedestrian tourist, crossing the forest from the Severn side to view the more picturesque scenery of the Wye, with intention to make stoppage at the ancient hostelry of the Speech House, midway between. In the days of the saddle and pack horse, however, things were different with Mitcheldean. Being on one of the direct routes of travel from the metropolis to South Wales, and a gate of entry, as it were, to the forest on its eastern side, it was then a place of considerable note, its people accustomed to all sorts of wayfarers passing daily, hourly, through it. Since the breaking out of the rebellion, these had been mostly of the military kind, though not confined to either party in the strife, one would march through to-day, the other to-morrow, so that, hearing the trample of hoofs, rarely could the townsmen tell whether royalists or parliamentarians were coming among them, till they saw their standards in the street. They would rather have received visit from neither, but, compelled to choose, preferred seeing the soldiers of the parliament. So, when Walwyn's horse came rattling along, their green coats with the cock's tail's feathers in their hats, distinguishable in the clear moonlight, the closed window shutters were flung open, and night-capped heads, for most had been abed, appeared in them without fear, exchanging speech with the soldiers halted in the street below, altogether different, their behaviour when, in a matter of ten minutes after a second party of horsemen came to a halt under their windows, these in scarlet coats, gold-laced with white ostrich feathers in their hats. the prince of Wales's plume with its appropriate motto of servility, Ich deen. Seeing it, the townsmen drew in their heads, closed the shutters, and were silent. Not going back to their beds, however, but to sit up in fear and trembling, till the renewed hoof strokes told them of the halt over, and the red-coated cavaliers ridden off again. It needs scarce be said that these were Rupert and his escort, en route for Westbury and, had Walwyn's horse stopped ten minutes longer in Mitcheldine, the two bodies would have there met face to face, since they were proceeding in opposite directions. A mere accident hindered their encountering, the circumstance that from the town two roads led up to the forest, one on each side of the wilderness, both again uniting in the valley of Drybrook. The northern route had been taken by the Parliamentarian party ascending, while the Royalists descended by the southern one called the Plump Hill, just at such time as to miss one another, though but by a few minutes, for the rearmost files of the former had barely cleared the skirts of the town going out, when the van of the latter entered it, at a different point. The interval, however, was long enough to prevent those who went forestwards from getting information of what they were leaving so close behind. Could they have had that, quick would have been their return downhill and the streets of Mitcheldean the arena of a conflict to the cry. No quarter! As it was, the hostile cohorts passed peacefully through, out and onwards, on their respective routes, though Prince Rupert knew how near he had been to a collision, and could still have brought it on. But that was the last thing in his thoughts. Instead, soon as learning what had gone up to the forest, who they were, and who their leader, his stay in Mitcheldean was of the shortest, And his way out of it, not forestwards, but straight on for the Severn. And in all the haste he could make, cumbered as he was with captives, for he carried with him a captive train, a small one, consisting of but three individuals, scarce necessary to say Ambrose Powell and his daughters. They were on horseback, the ladies wrapped in cloaks and so close hooded that their faces were invisible. Even their figures were so draped as to be scarce distinguishable from those of men, all done with a design, not their own, but that of those who had them in charge. In passing through Micheldene precautions had been taken to hinder their being recognized, double files of their guards riding in close order on each side of them, so that curious eyes should not come too near. But when once more, out on the country road, the formation by twos was resumed, The trio of prisoners, each with a trooper right and left, conducted behind the knot of officers on the prince's personal staff, he himself with Lunsford leading. Soon as outside the town, the two last, as usual riding together, and some paces in the advance, entered on dialogue of a confidential character. The prince commenced it, saying, "'We've had a narrow escape, Sir Thomas.' Does your highness refer to our having missed meeting the party of roundheads? Of course I do, just that. Then I should say, tis they who've had the narrow escape. Nine, colonel. Not so certain of that, knowing who they are. These foresters fight like devils, and, from all I could gather, they greatly outnumber us. I shouldn't so much mind the odds, but for how we're hampered. To have fought them, and got the worst of it, would have been ruinous to our reputation, as to the other thing. It isn't likely we'd have got the worst of it. Few get the better of your highness that way. Lunsford's brave talk was not in keeping with his thoughts. Quite as pleased was he as the prince, at their having escaped an encounter with the party of parliamentarians. For never man dreaded meeting man more than he Sir Richard Walwyn. Words had of late been conveyed to him, from camp to camp and across neutral lines, warning words that his old enemy was more than ever incensed against him, and in any future conflict where the two should be engaged, meant singling him out and seeking his life. After what he had done now, was still doing, he knew another encounter with Walwyn would be one of life and death, and dreaded it accordingly. Still, Prince, he added, as you observe, considering our encumbrances, perhaps it's been for the best letting them off." Ay, if they let us off, which they may not yet. Suppose some of the townsmen have followed, and told them of our passing through. No fear of that, Prince. If any one did follow, it's not likely they could be overtaken. They were riding as in a race, and won't draw bridle till they see the blaze over Hollymead. Then they'll but gallop the faster, in the wrong direction. The right one for us, if they do. But even so, they would reach hollymead in less than an hour then turn short round to pursue and in another hour be upon our heels you forget that we can't say safety till we're over the severn i don't forget that prince but they won't turn round to pursue us why say you that sir thomas how know you they won't because they won't suspect our having come this way never think of it before putting the torch to the old delinquent's house I took the precaution to have all his domestics locked up in an outbuilding, that they shouldn't see which way we went off. And they, and the Rardine people, knew we came up from Monmouth. They'll naturally conclude that we returned thither. So, your highness, any pursuit of us will take the direction down Cat's Hill, instead of by Drybrook and down the Plump. Egad, I hope so, Colonel. For, to speak truth, I don't feel in the spirit for a fight just now. It was not often Rupert gave way to cowardice, and more seldom confessed it, even in confidence to his familiars, of whom Lumsford was one of the most intimate. But at that hour he felt it to very fear. Perhaps from the wine he had drunk at Hollymead, now cold in him, and it might be his conscience weighted with the crime he was in the act of committing. Whatever the cause, his nervousness became heightened rather than diminished, as they marched on and anxiously longed he to be on the other side of the severn not more so than his reprobate companion whose bravado was all assumed his words of confidence forced from him to gloss over the mistake he had made in recommending the route taken sorry was he now as his superior that they had not gone by monmouth within its castle walls they would at that moment have been safe instead of hurrying along a road with the obstruction of a river in front and the possibility of pursuit behind aye the probability of it as lunceford himself knew well feigning to ignore it in any case your highness he continued in the same strain of encouragement we'll be out of their way in good time from here it's but a step down to westbury by this they had reached the head of the ravine-like valley in which stands flaxley abbey and were hastening forward fast as the impedimenta of captives would permit the road runs down the valley which, after several sinuosities, debouches on the Severn's plain. But, long before attaining this, at rounding one of the turns, their eyes were greeted by a sight which sent tremor to their hearts. "'Mein Gott!' cried the prince, suddenly reining up, and speaking in a tone of mingled surprise and alarm. "'You see, Sir Thomas?' Sir Thomas did see, sharing the other's alarm, but without showing it, a sheet of water that shone silvery white under the moonlight overspreading all the plain below the river of flood and inundation everywhere." We'll not be able to cross at all? pursued the Prince, in desponding interrogative. Shall we? Oh, yes, Your Highness, I think so, was the doubting response. The water can't be so high as to hinder us, at least not likely. There's a pierhead at Westbury Passage on both sides, and the boats will be there as ever. I don't anticipate any great difficulty in the crossing, only we'll have to wait a bit. that will be difficulty enough danger too what danger your highness through the meadows there's a raised causeway and fortunately i'm familiar with every inch of it while with sir john winter i had often occasion to travel it more than once under water even if we can't make the westbury passage we can that of framilode but a mile or two above i've never heard of it being so flooded as to prevent passing over It may be, as you say, Sir Thomas, but the danger I'm thinking of has more to do with time than floods. Waiting's slow work, and there's still the possibility of Walwyn and his greencoats coming on after us. Suppose they should, and find us floundering through the water. No need supposing that, Prince. There isn't the slightest likelihood of it. I'd stake high that, at this minute, they're at the bottom of Cat's Hill, or it may be by Goodrich Ferry, seeking to cross over the Wye, as we the Severn. And, like as not, Lincoln will give them a turn if he gets word of their being about there. Sir Harry has now a strong force in the castle, and owes Dick Walwyn a revanche. For that affair on the Hereford Road, the morning after Curl led them into Monmouth. For all, I wish we had gone Monmouth Way, rejoined Rupert, as his eyes rested doubtingly on the white sheet of water widespread over the plain below. I still fear they are pursuing us. Even if they should, your Highness, we need have no apprehension. The pursuit can't be immediate, and, please God, in another hour or so we'll be over the Severn, as likely they on the other side of the Wye, with both rivers between them and us. Would that I were sure of that, Colonel, returned the Prince, still desponding. Which I'm not. However, we've no alternative now but to cross here, if we can. You seem to have a doubt of our being able to make the passage of Westbury? I'm only a little uncertain about it, your highness. But sure about that of Framilode? Quite, though the flood be of the biggest and deepest. Zervol. With that assurance I'm satisfied. But we must have things secure behind ere we commence making our wade. And we may as well take the step now. So, colonel, ride back along the line, detach a rearguard, and place it under some officer who can be trusted. Lose not a moment. Stay at halt here till you return to me. The commanding officer of the escort, as much alive to the prudence of this precaution, as he who gave the orders for it, hastened to carrying them out. Done by detailing off a few of the rearmost files with directions to remain as they were, while the main body moved forward. Then instructions given, to the officer who was to take charge of them, all occupying less than ten minutes' time after which lunsford again placed himself by the side of the prince and the march was immediately resumed down the valley of flaxley on for the flooded plain end of chapter 65 recording by matthew reese cordova illinois